Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now, I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Bill. Hi, everybody. I'm Jill. I'm a compulsive overeater and a 100-pounder. Hi, Jill. Hi. This is really quite something. Um, um, wow. I, you know, I first would just want to say, first of all, for the newcomers, um, my hope for you is that you're desperate and out of ideas. Um, I uh, came in the rooms about a little over five years ago at about 327 pounds. Uh, I'm maintaining about a 160-pound weight loss, and I've been maintaining this weight for about the last three years, which is really a miracle, and all I do is show up and keep coming back. So um, I'll talk a little bit about my abstinence and what it was like for me and how I got here and what it's like for me now. But, you know, I woke up this morning feeling really, really humbled, Um, just so grateful to be here. And, you know, I'll share my story in a little bit, but... What, what, what is really profound to me is that, you know, the, standing behind a, a podium and a microphone in a, in a room full of people, you know, the, the little girl who, who did anything to be invisible, you know, it's really quite something to be standing here today and, and sharing my story with everybody and really quite a privilege and an honor to do so. And quite scary at the same time, but, you know, I just show up today. And, and as I share my story, um, you're going to hear threads of wanting to be invisible in my life. And really, for me, 327 pounds, the weight was a coat for me, and it, and it kept me invisible and kept me separate from all of you, which is which is really what my story is all about. So um, I'll just talk a little bit about what my abstinence looks like today first. Um, my abstinence is three meals a day with, and I used to say nothing in between, but a fellow says life in between, and I related to that. So it's three meals a day uh, with life in between. Um, and what that is specifically is uh, no sugar, no snack foods, and no form foods. And form foods, to me, I included my, my uh, home group as a Sunday relapse meeting. Um, that was my first meeting, and I heard the speaker talk about form foods, and I related to it, so it was important for me to include that in my absence as well. So a form food to me is anything that looks like something else. Uh, I can't, a, a protein bar looks like a candy bar. I'll still eat 18 of them. Yogurt has a consistency of ice cream. I'll still eat a whole gallon and so on and so forth. I have the same kind of idea, good idea with anything that's sugar-free. Anything from Whole Foods or Trader Joe's isn't necessarily good for me just because it's from Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. So, um, you know, and I, that's the way I used to think. Oh, it's granola from Trader Joe's, you know, eat the whole box. You know, those are my best ideas. And it's quite clear to me that my best ideas got me to 327 pounds. And, you know, I know a lot of people in the room today, um, and I don't, you know, my story is my story, and I don't have any new tricks. It's just that simple. And thank God I don't have any new tricks today. So um, let's see. Oh, and then I have a, a, a list of foods, a red, yellow, and green food list. Red is, uh, no, you listen to my absence. Okay, so you can have uh, fast food and pizza and bread and stuff. All of those things are on my red food list. And I've, I have included free food on my red food list. 
everything on my red food food list, although it, it it's not a part of my abstinence, is slippery for me. So red foods I stay away from. Yellow foods are cautionary foods, and then green foods are you know are are not a problem. And the truth of the matter is, is that yellow foods for me are kind of like a graduation. Yellow, everything on my yellow food list, like cheese, probably should really be on my red list. That's the truth. But for right now, we're just kind of keeping it on the yellow list. So, uh, what it was like for me, um, I uh, in writing a food history with my sponsor early on. She suggested that I just kind of write about what my life was like and just kind of connect the dots to where it all started and my earliest recollection. And my earliest recollection was when I was about four years old, I broke into a neighbor's house and stole all their Halloween candy and buried it in a shoebox in the backyard for, I don't know, I guess I was waiting for the world to come to an end or something. I'd be the only one in the world that had candy and people would line up for miles because I would have the candy. And uh, that's how it went. And so I also remember, um, some of you might remember the Helmsman, which is like the bakery on wheels. Um, early on, the Helmsman would come down the street, and, and uh, I, I, at probably about eight, started a tab at the Helms, with the Helmsman. And because I'm a people pleaser, that included every, all the kids on the block as well. So I had this big old tab with the, with the Helmsman. Uh, but when I was 12, there were two things that happened um, really, really just really just kind of changed my life. First of all, I was molested by a janitor when I was 12. You know, and I was kind of thinking about all of that this morning and and not really what had happened so much, but, but just the, the seduction part. And something that I had never really thought about was, you know, he didn't offer me a, a shiny new toy or a puppy. He offered me candy and sugar. You know, and when I really, and that's really kind of what I've been thinking about all day and how much of a role and how profound sugar and compulsive overeating has really affected my life. So, you know, and I have to say, too, that early on and when I, when I would, would leave meetings, I really thought, well, you know, do I want to include that? You know, it's, you know, it's a little uncomfortable to talk about. But, you know, here, here's the thing. First of all, if I start editing my story, I'm in real trouble. Um, secondly, it's the truth. And then... Um, most importantly, if it helps somebody else connect the dots, then so be it. So it's part of my story and one that I include in my share. So when all, that all, all of that happened, um, I remember kind of the lights went off and I just wanted to be invisible. And I took on all of that shame, all of that guilt, all of that self-loathing, all of that hopelessness, all of that unlovability. There was such a word. I took all of that on. And then in the same year, my parents were divorced, and it just validated what I already thought about myself. Unworthy of love, abandoned, um, if I could only be better, um, unlovable, unworthy, and all of that. So fast forward through my teenage years, I did a lot of drugs and alcohol. Um, and when I was 20, I was pregnant and married in that order. Uh, I gained about uh, 60 pounds during my pregnancy. <clears throat> had hypertension and toxemia, no idea what they were, was too afraid to ask um, until I delivered my child and then looked it up in the dictionary and uh, was really quite mortified and really thought, wow, my, 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 my weight really probably had a lot to do with me gaining, um, with me having toxemia and hypertension. And by the way, I had to have a, uh, have, had to have a cesarean because of uh, my hypertension and, and the weight that I had gained. So, you know, my weight clearly, clearly, clearly played a large role 
and in how I lived my life. So, um, yeah, I just fast forward to 327 pounds. Basically, I I did everything I could to eat and manipulate when I was going to eat, how I was going to eat, how I was going to manipulate myself um, to be alone when I ate, um, what kind of food you were going to have, when I was going to eat, how much, and so on and so forth. But some of you have heard this story before. But when I was about 30, I started getting... uh, uh, curious about my sexuality and there was this gay girl at work and this really kind of encapsulates my whole kind of mindset about food and so I asked her one day I said can I ask you a question and she said yeah anything what is it and I said what kind of food do you guys eat (laughs) that that is all I cared about you know I didn't give a thought to what that might mean to my marriage or how that would affect my child I just wanted to know what kind of food you had and that's how I lived my life I um, lived my life on the sidelines, sitting on the couch watching TV. Uh, There were many times where I didn't go out. I was afraid to, I don't know, go to a sporting event for fear I wouldn't be able to fit in the seats. You know, I remember going to Lane Bryant at at a size 26, thinking, oh, good, they go up to size 28. Okay, there's still a little bit of room. There's still some hope for me. Um, I... uh, Let's see, many times I would fly on an airplane without being belted in because I was too ashamed to ask the flight attendant for a seatbelt extension. Um, And the times that I did find the courage to ask for a seatbelt extension, I made sure that I was on the plane first, manipulated my way on the plane first so I wouldn't be embarrassed. Um, If I was invited to a barbecue, I never went because I was afraid that you would have the plastic kind of chairs that I would break. Um, wouldn't go to amusement parks for fear that I wouldn't be able to fit on the ride and that I would be embarrassed, and that's how I lived my life. You know, somebody brought up horseback riding. You know, I was I was the one on the Internet looking for the weight maximum, you know, and it was usually around 200 and 250 pounds, and that meant that I couldn't go, and that's how I lived my life. Um, yeah, so what happened was that I had been in another 12-step program that deals with people, places, and things and was in there for a long time. And and, uh, I didn't have a sponsor. I sponsored myself. In fact, I probably even read my fifth step to myself. So (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so I had been familiar with with 12-step programs. And like I said, I was in those rooms for a long, long time sat there and complained about everybody else and, you know, stopped at Taco Bell on the way home. Never, never thinking that I was part of the equation. Never taking accountability for any of my behavior, any of my actions or reactions. It was always somebody else's fault, and I was always a victim to to everybody else. You know, I used to have this, it's really kind of funny and frightening at the same time, I used to have this thought, if I could find a mate that would just be just like me, my life would be perfect. What a mortifying thought that is. So, but that's what I thought. You know, so how I got here, I uh, was in a relationship for six years with somebody that I thought I would be with forever at uh, 327 pounds, and I was up in San Francisco on a business trip. And it was about a week before our six-year anniversary, and she called me up on the phone, and she said she didn't want to be in the relationship anymore. And when I said, why? She said, because you're not taking care of yourself. And I probably said something like, well, what do you mean? But I knew what she meant. I knew what she meant. And so, honestly, I was devastated. 
So I came home to an empty house, and I remember thinking, how did I get here? How did I get to 327 pounds? I was so disconnected from my feelings, from my thoughts. I had no idea that five pizzas would lead me to X amount of weight. I had no connection with X amount of calories equals X amount of pounds. No connection whatsoever. Again, I just wanted to be invisible. Um, and and the, the, the irony, if you will, is, is that, you know, in my mind, I think that I'm invisible at 327 pounds, but who doesn't notice a 327-pound woman coming into the rooms? You know, that's, that's kind of the joke of it all, if you will. So I uh, called up a, a friend of mine, um, was in a lot of pain over the end of that relationship, and she said that um, she knew of somebody that was in OA and that it had helped her. I had no idea what OA was. But I showed up at the Sunday relapse meeting, and all I, remember, all I wanted to do was just get out of pain for an hour. I was so desperate and so, in so much pain. I just wanted to show up for some place for an hour, just get out of the house, just get out of myself, and just sit for an hour. And, you know, I really don't, my opinion is, is that it really doesn't matter how you get here as long as you get here. And it really doesn't matter why you stay as long as you stay. Um, and I remember, as I said earlier, relating to the, to the person that was speaking and his abstinence and form food specifically. But when I walked into the rooms, it felt like home to me. And for the first time ever, I felt a little bit of hope because I knew that there were other people like me. I, I remember thinking that I'm not just some sort of freak that just can't control my food. I thought, you know, I'm the piece of crap that the world revolves around. Um, I'm, the only, I'm the only one that compulsively overeats. So it was so, it was so, it offered me a tremendous amount of hope to see a whole room full of people talking about the same things that I thought. So when the time came for newcomers to raise their hand, I remember raising my hand and saying my name, and I couldn't say I was a compulsive overeater for a long time. I just said my name is Jill, but I remember saying that I, that I felt like I'd been struck willing, and that's what I felt ever since. But I feel like I've been struck willing from that day, and I just started showing up, and you told me to, to get a sponsor, um, and I did. And you told me that if I worked the steps, my life would change, and it has. So I started working with a sponsor, and she said, okay, you've got to call me every morning at 6.30 with reading and writing, and you give me your food every day. And if your food changes, then you've got to call me. And I said, okay. And she said, and your absence needs to be everything to you. First and foremost needs to be everything, and you can't be in a relationship for a year. And I go, What? But, you know, that's probably the biggest gift that, it, that was given to me at that time because I, I, I needed to lay a foundation for my, for my abstinence. And, I, you know, she said, you know what, you don't even know who you are. You've been eating for, eating for so long. You're 327 pounds. You have no idea who you are. And that being said, how can you expect to be in a relationship with somebody when you have no idea who you are yourself? So it gave me a year of building a foundation of self and of abstinence. And my abstinence, as it is today, is the most important thing in my life. So, like I said, we started working the steps. And um, now I have to say that the very first sponsor that I had um, uh, went into relapse. 
And she came to me probably about 30 days into my abstinence and said that she couldn't be my sponsor anymore. And, of course, I was devastated, but it led me to to another sponsor that I've been working with ever since um, and gives me a tremendous amount of hope. Um, I also have a number of sponsees that I that I work with myself. And all I do is pick up the phone every morning, you know, and, you know, the first thing that I say to them is that, you know, I'm not your mom, I'm not your dad, I'm not your friend, I'm not your therapist. I'm a compulsive overeater that'll pick up the phone. I'm a compulsive overeater that'll that'll share your, my experience, strength, and hope with you and, and be honest. And that's what I'll do. And that's what I do. So, um, let's see. I, I want to talk about the steps a little bit. So, I... Uh, I have some of my uh, from some of my favorite um, lines here in paragraphs, so I guess I'll just start with step one. So, step one: we admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. So, the reading that I love the most in step one is: clearly, if we are to live free of bondage of compulsive overeating, we must abstain from all foods and eating behaviors which causes problems. If we don't overeat, we won't trigger the reaction that makes us crave more. And what I've learned in the rooms, for me, if it's not an option, it's not a problem. Uh, zero is easier than one for me. Um, other people's food is none of my business. I don't eat out of, off of other people's plates. It's not my food. All right, step two. Came to believe in a pow- that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And the reading I liked on that says, the only trouble was that our compulsive overeating progressed. As, as our compulsive overeating progressed, it became harder for us to get enough. Instead of bringing comfort, the overeating backfired. The more we ate, the more we suffered, yet we continued to overeat. You know, I remember, I remember reading this and thinking, okay, I get it. I so get it. I mean, at some point, and I don't know, I don't know at what point, the food turned on me. It was it was a comfort. My friend for a long, long time got me through a lot of things, um, but at some point it turned on me, and and I still ate. You know, I remember, you know, at 327 pounds, just to talk about again what it was like. I had um, there I broke the bed frame. I was on uh, my blood pressure was sky high. I had uh, acid, severe acid reflux and would wake up in the middle of the night gagging on the acid that went, went into my airway, not being able to gasp for breath, or get, gain my breath, rather, and would still order pizza the next morning for breakfast. And that's how I lived my life. Uh, step three. Actually, there's another one on step two that I'd like to read. Perhaps we didn't believe that our compulsive eating was a spiritual problem or we felt that God was concerned only with more important matters and expected us to control such a simple thing as our eating. We failed to understand that God loves us in our totality and is willing and able to help us in everything we do, that God will help us with every decision, even food choices and amounts. And then step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Probably my all-time favorite is, because I'm a liar and a cheat with my food, we will no longer simply do what we feel like doing or what we think we can get away with. Instead, we will earnestly seek to learn God's will for us, then then we will act accordingly. We give up fear and indecision, knowing that if we are sincere, our higher power will give us the knowledge of the best course in life, 
along with a willingness and ability to follow that course, even when it seems difficult and uncomfortable. Um, and I, when I read this, I remember thinking, the game is over, the gig is up. Um, because I'm a liar and a cheat with my food. You know, I'm the girl that will call in two pieces of chicken to my sponsor when really it's like two halves of a whole chicken. That's the kind of stuff that I do. That's the kind of stuff that I do. Or I call in corn and it's like corn chips or corn tortillas or something, you know. And I also know for me when I'm vague, there's a payoff with my vagueness with food. And when also when I hear my sponsees being vague with their food, there's a reason that they're vague with their food as well. Um, and then I'm going to read step seven. What I just read was out of the OA 12 and 12. I'm going to read step seven, which really hit the nail on the head for me too. And this is out of the AA 12 and 12. Step seven is humbly ask him to remove our, our shortcomings. The chief activator of our defects has been self-centered fear, primarily fear that we would lose something we already possessed or fail to get something we demanded. Living upon a basis of unsatisfied demands, we were in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. Therefore, no peace was to be had unless we could find a means of reducing these demands. This really hit the nail on the head for me. I'm a self-centered, I'm a self-centered liar, basically. Um, and lived my life in fear, full of self-centered, um, behavior. Um, another 15, 20 minutes left. So I'll just talk about what my life is like today. Um, as I said, I get up every morning at 6 o'clock, have my reading and my writing ready for my sponsor, call her at 6.30, give her my reading, and um, work the steps. I had the opportunity to um, do a nice step with my son Probably, you know, and I have to say, I really want to say that the weight loss is really nothing and compared to what my life is today. It's completely different, completely changed as the promises talks about. You know, I, I, you guys told me to keep showing up in my life for change and I would live the promises. And I really feel that, you know, I have some of that today. You know, and as a result, I, again, I had the opportunity to make a nice step amends to my son. He's 35. And I had the opportunity to make amends to him probably about a year ago now. And it was probably one of the most beautiful conversations I've ever had in my life as a result in, in working on this with my sponsor and showing up every day. And I got to make amends to him for not showing up um, when he was a child. You know, and I, 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 and I said this to a fellow the other day, you know, I don't know how I did that at 20 years old in a single parent. I don't know how I did that. And she said, yes, you do. You compulsively overate through it. And I said, oh, yeah, you're right. And that's what I did, and that's what I got to make amends for, and not showing up, you know, for his life, um, to being too afraid to do anything, to participate in his life. So and I have a completely different relationship with him today, and I show up. You know, and I don't really know how to do that, but I come to the rooms and I talk to other fellows about how to do that um, and take that. I'm a big believer in taking my, my problems to the meetings and my sponsor and the solutions to my relationships. So what that means in my relationship with my son today is that I get to show up differently and act differently. And I also have five grandchildren that I get to be a grandmother to as well. And I have to be frank, there are most days I don't even remember their names. And I have to say that, you know, my partner, I said, you know, what's, how old is this one again and how do you spell their name? And, and she says, you know what, and it's, and it's Valentine's Day, maybe you should send them like a Valentine's box of Valentine's cards and things. And I say, Really? Because I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I was so checked out as a mother. I had no idea. 
But you know, that's what I get to that's what I get to find out and get to do differently in these rooms today, and you guys help me with that. Um, so what's my life today other than making amends to my son and having a different relationship with him? I you know, I, I refuse, refuse, refuse to live my life on the sidelines today watching other people live their lives, and that's what I did for way too long. I refuse to do that today. So somebody says, let's go kayaking. I've never been before. Let's go. Somebody says, let's go to Paris. Let's go to Maui. Let's go to Ireland. I'm there. You know, let's go horseback riding. I don't need to check the Internet. I know that I'm I'm in a normal body weight and I can show up. I can go to sporting events. I can fly on a plane. I can do all of the things that I was way too afraid to do before. I have to say, as a 100-pounder, it's a completely different life. Um, I... uh, you know, and I take my abstinence with me no matter where I go. I eat the same thing that I do in Santa Monica that I do in Paris. You know, same thing that I have in Maui I have in Rancho Cucamonga. Now, I travel quite a bit for business, and my abstinence never changes. I, ha- I know where to go at the places that I travel. I know where safe places are for me to eat. I no longer just show up hoping p- people have the food that I can eat. I no longer just show up at a restaurant hoping they have what I can eat. I'll tell you a nightmare story about that. I went to a Thai restaurant for a friend's birthday. No experience with Thai food. Just, just showed up, and this was the first and last time that ever happened. And I got there, and everything on the menu had some sugary, glazy stuff on there. And so I asked the server, what do you have? And she says, uh, nothing. So I, yeah, so I, I uh, took the menu outside and called my sponsor in a panic. And she says, all right, you have choices. You can go to, you know, Koyaloka down the street. You can sit there and, you know, have your dinner later. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Or, you know, what I did was I think I had, like, two hard-boiled eggs and some lettuce. And that's the first and last time that ever happened. I no longer show up just hoping people have my food. You know, my abstinence is my responsibility. It's not anybody else's. So I'm a big believer in a, a, a failure to plan is a plan to fail. Um, so... I want to talk a little bit about my trip to Paris because it completely changed my life about two years ago. My partner and I went to Paris. And I found myself just kind of being drawn to flower shops and just wanting to hang around flowers. And it brought me a great amount of peace and serenity and joy. And I came back thinking, you know, what do I, what do I want? I've been at the same job for about 15 years. And just as my size 26, 28 size pants no longer fit, no longer does my job. What do I want to do? So shortly after I, I at 56, 55, I uh, went back to school for floral design and with the hopes of being um, having my own business in uh, of floral design today. So, you know, I, I, as the promises, talk about surround myself with joy and the things that bring me joy and passion and a completely per- different person in that sense. You know, I, I bring God with me everywhere, and in my prayer every morning, I ask God to show me who you want me to be and tell me what you want me to do. Um, I ask to be of service every day. Help me to show up for the opportunity to be of service. Help me to be out of self, and help me to recognize when I can be of service for somebody. Um, if, and if I am in a particular, if I have an issue or a problem and I don't have the answer, I wait. Waiting for me is an action, and I wait until I get clarity, do a lot of writing on it. Um, and when I, when I think that I have what fits for me, I sit with it a little longer with God, and if it still feels right, that's when I take the action. Um, I, I'll talk a little bit about, because uh, I was talking a little bit earlier about ideas, and, uh, you know, I, I am clear that 
I'm just one bite away from a compuls- from compulsively overeating, and my disease is in the is in the next room doing push-ups, just waiting for an opportunity to slip in. So I'll tell you a, a snack story. We have some time here. So, you know, my ego wants to tell you this happened um, early on in my absence, but it probably happened about a year ago. I was, uh, as I said, I do a lot of traveling, and I think I was in Tucson at the time. And because I travel quite a bit, I'm afforded the privilege, if you will, or the luxury of the concierge uh, level, which, of course, has that concierge lounge. Um, here's where the free food comes in. So I uh, was in my room, and I had the idea that the concierge lounge is right next door to my room. I'm going to go in there and get a water. Well, there's water in my room, okay? but the concierge lounge water is better. So I'm going to go in and get a, a bottle of water out of the concierge lounge. So I go in there, and uh, there's nobody in there, and they have a table full of snacks, and there's nobody in the room. And I think my, my partner at the time wasn't working, and I think she would really like these snacks. <laughs> they were all her favorite snacks. Poor thing isn't working. She's probably going to be in the in the alley soon, you know, from hunger, you know, forlorn, you know, calling for snacks. And you know, I can bring some snacks home to her, and you know, it'll be lovely. So, gathered a couple bags of snacks and went back to my room, and they're sitting there on the bed. And you know, three bags of snacks is never enough. Well, that's not enough. She's going to need more snacks than that. So went back over the concierge lounge, gathered up another handful of snacks, brought them back, set them on the bed. Well, that's not enough snacks either. <laughs> so went back over, got some more snacks. And next thing I know, I have a pile of snacks on the bed. All right. So now I go into the closet, and you know that that plastic bag that's the size of a pillowcase that's for dry clean? I whip that bad boy open put the snacks in there and think, okay, well, that's not a very, I mean, comparative to the bag, that's not very much snacks. And it's going to look really dumb if I take the, how embarrassing is that going to be if I bring the, the, the dry cleaning bag over to the concierge lounge. So here I am, I can't do that. So that's going to be really embarrassing and mortifying. So I'm just going to go, I'm like a squirrel, back and forth with handfuls of snack, putting them in the bag, back and forth, until the the bag itself is more than halfway full. All right, so then I'm leaving to go home the next day, and I'm squeezing the snacks into my bag. (laughs) And then I'm on the shuttle, from the shuttle to the airport, thinking, crap, what if my bag is overweight because of the snacks? <laughs> and how am I going to, ju- because I'm not going to pay for the overweight bag charge, how am I going to justify in my expense report the extra $25.50 because of snacks? All right, so here's where the lying and the cheating comes in. All right, I just tell, I'll just tell them it's extra paperwork or something. All right, so bag makes it through, no problem. I get home open the bag, the heavens open, and there's the snacks. All right. So I go to a Friday meeting. At the time I was living down in Long Beach, go to a Friday meeting, and I am sitting in the front row, and the speaker's talking, blah, 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 and I'm full of judgment about what everybody else is talking about in their share. And the intuitive voice says, Jill, how much time did you spend on those snacks today? And I got up, and I raised my hand, and I got up just as I'm talking to you today, 
and I shared the same snack story. And a fellow came up to me afterwards and says, Jill, do you think you owe the hotel an amends for stealing their snacks? (laughs) You know, and I have to say my response was not something that I would say. What I said was, you might be right. Now, that's not something that I would normally say, but you might be right. So I went home called my sponsor and she said absolutely you need to make amends and get rid of the snacks you don't need to find the snacks a home I'm not big on you I gotta find them a home like you know like it's a pet or something I gotta find it a home just throw it away so you know I had the opportunity to make amends to the hotel I don't know maybe about eight months ago for taking their snacks and that's how I live my life today you know because that's the stuff that I eat over That's the stuff that I eat over. And I am so done with that. I am so, so done with that. That that same old song, I'm just so done with that. Um, Again, that kind of stuff keeps me in self. And that kind of stuff, you know, just kind of perpetuates itself. Even if it's something as simple as me not putting the cart in the, the, the cart bin at the grocery store. You know, I things as simple as that. I really, really try just to keep my, my side of the street clean whenever I can. So I think I'm pretty much, I have like, I don't know, like five minutes left. I think I'm pretty much done. So um, I think that's it. Oh, you know, I want to read the little, the, my all-time favorite from the big book on acceptance. So, all right. Page 417 of the big book. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Until I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. And then it goes on to say that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. When complain about me or about you, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. I am saying that I know better than God. You know, and I have to say, when I'm in some sort of distress, I always read this page, and I have a completely, completely different change of attitude after I read this page, always. And when my sponsees, you know, are in a spin about something, I point them to the same page. You know, you know the program says so much depends upon our attitudes, and that's what it talks about in, in Awakening as well, and how I want to start my morning. Um, and I'll just close with this thought. I'm a, I'm a big one with, with mantras. My latest mantra is is that I, I measure my spiritual fitness on my, by my willingness to be inconvenienced by my recovery today. And thanks for letting me share. Uh, yeah, the question was, what is my higher power look like? And is that what you, in a yeah, nutshell? What, yeah. what do I do for practice in my higher power? You know, that's a really good question, and it's really kind of evolved. I remember early on, I used to call it the Santa Claus God. I would write a list of everything that I wanted, and that was, you know, like it was Santa Claus or something. Um, And then I thought that if I gave God my problems, it meant that 
I didn't have to feel my feelings. So there's a disconnect there, too. I thought if I gave it to God, it just was like, oh, okay, done with that. So, uh, you know, I happen to be on the 11th step right now, and I hope this answers your question. For me, I was really struggling with, okay, what is meditation What is meditation, and what does that look like? You know, I had this idea that, you know, I had to sit cross-legged, you know, with my palms open and, you know, like something on TV or, or you know, or, or whatever. And I... I went to some different religions, uh, religions and workshops and, you know, what is meditation? And I was really kind of searching for that. But I have to tell you that um, yoga, for me, has really kind of blended the two. I get a lot of peace around that practice. Um, and that's what um, my meditation looks like for me today. Um, I try to sit with a timer on for like five minutes, but I have a really hard time with that. I have a real hard time sitting still. Um, and not that this answers your question or anything, but I remember early on when I was abstinent, it felt like it, I was so uncomfortable in myself. It felt like there were bugs crawling all over me. And I don't mean this literally, but I remember telling my sponsor, I just want to, I just feel like I want to hurl myself out the window. I'm so uncomfortable. But today I ask for the willingness to be uncomfortable in everything that I do. So to answer your question, Natalie, it's really kind of evolved from a Santa Claus list to really kind of practicing yoga and being quiet and being with myself and being focusing on my breath. Um, and for me, the ocean um, brings a lot of serenity to me. Um, I think a lot about flowers and creativity, so I kind of marry that into my God and meditation as well. Thank you. Talk about how sure. Made sure. The question is, um, she wants to know how I specifically made amends for the snacks. Right. So I, uh, I think I calculated it to be, I don't know, like forty or fifty dollars or something. And then I uh, asked for the hotel manager. I went to the reception desk and asked for the hotel manager, and asked if she could just step aside so I could. I needed to have a private conversation for a moment, and I just said, you know, um, you know, about six months ago, whatever it was, I I took too many snacks, and I took more than than what I than what I should have, and I wanted. I don't want. And I'm sorry, and I want to pay you for that. And I gave her the money. And she said, thank you, and that was that. Mm, thank you, that's a great question. So uh, the question is, what do I do with character defects as they pop up, and how does how that, that change? It's, it's, yeah, that's a really great question. It's kind of like, like at the carnival, that, that whack-a-mole thing, like when you hit one on the head, like another one pops up in the hole, and like, oh, okay, smash that one, oh, there's another one. You know, my character defects got me through a lot of got me through a lot of things, but they no longer serve me. And what I, you know, I really don't. When one pops up, here's the thing, you know, and they pop up over and over again, and they and they get different. So when one pops up, you know, I I, I heard this beautiful share about the same thing um, some months ago, and you know, a, a ballerina doesn't just wake up one morning and perform a beautiful leap. She practices that same leap over and over and over again perfection. A concert pianist doesn't just wake up one morning and play a beautiful piece on the piano. He practices that piece over and over and over again, and I do the same with my character defects. I am given the opportunity every day to practice them differently over and over and over again, um, and that's what I do. So thank you. Yes. Oh, am I done? Okay, thank you.